I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Selena Kopik. Don't scream help because no one will help you. What do you scream, my friends? <laughs> Correct. I probably shouldn't urge you to scream that in a crowded theater right now. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say there's an amazing new podcast coming out called Missing Richard Simmons. If you don't know, three years ago, the very eccentric, very wonderful, hilarious fitness guru, Richard Simmons, just disappeared, not just from the public eye, but from the lives of everyone who he was close to, just disappeared. He had spent decades in, in the limelight as one of the most accessible celebrities in the world. But in the last few years, almost no one has even seen him, and no one knows why he left. But filmmaker Dan Taberski is a friend or was a friend of Richard and, and has created this podcast series going out in search of him. And every episode, it just gets stranger. So subscribe now to Missing Richard Simmons in Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we're so excited to say we had a successful first month at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash risk. Thanks to you guys. We reached our first fundraising goal of $1,000 a month in fan donations. So now I have to do what I promised and make our Patreon supporters a video of me singing the stamps.com song live. Now, if you want to see that and lots more patron-only content, head over to patreon.com slash risk and become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want. Get lots of awesome prizes and perks, including this new one. Patrons will now get exclusive access to buy risk live show tickets before the general public. And our live shows, our tour shows especially, sell out. So get on that. And right now, I want to especially thank Caleb Dale, Jonathan Hurst, and Jen Grippa for donating $25 a month to us, and Sandra Geyer for donating $50 a month to us. Gosh, wow, I'll tell you, we are so honored and so thrilled 
that the show means so much to you guys. It means the world to us. Your support does. It means our livelihood and the resources we have to really keep making this happen as best we can. So for anyone who's not there yet, go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron of ours today. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is Derek lures and michael sims behind me now we're calling this week's episode uh face off not a face off just flat out fucking face off not fucking face off nothing flat out about just face off guys guys what does that have to do with the t- nothing it's face it's it's now it's, it's no you motherfuckers face off all right now that we got that established uh these are three stories by people who faced their critics or their bullies or their doubters And we're all the better for it. Three amazing voices. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of the treasures of the New York City storytelling scene, Tara Clancy. Tara has a new book out called The Clancy's of Queens. I'll say a lot more about that after we hear her story. But first, we're going to hear from, oh, one of my favorite people, period, Selena Kopik. You can find Selena at selenacopic.com. Now here she is live at the Risk Show (laughs) that we do once a month at the Bell House with a story we call Got a Lot of Hustle. Hello, hello. How we doing? Good. Okay. All right, all right. I'm so excited to be here. This is rad. Okay. The night before Thanksgiving, 2006, I had moved to New York just a few months prior, and I had just gotten a solid job, finally. I was, uh, had just been hired and was about to start after Thanksgiving. I would start as a children's editor at Barnes & Noble Corporate, and I was so excited. So I went home for Thanksgiving to the suburbs of Boston where I grew up, kick Massachusetts. Yeah, mass holes, nice, Dunkin' Donuts. Love it. So I went back to have Thanksgiving there. And I'm sure my mass hole friends can relate and a lot of people can relate. Um, the night before Thanksgiving is the traditional night when every asshole you went to high school with goes to the same bar so you can all see each other and be like, life is good! (laughs) Floating on air, you know? Like, everything's coming up me! 
And that was sort of my intention that night. Um, my best friend Suzanne and I were going to go out in downtown Boston to a bar, bar called Lear, formerly known as McCarthy's. Um, I was going to show everybody that I'd moved to New York and I got a job and this ugly duckling turned into a swan, you know? I was really excited to see a bunch of people and to be seen, you know what I mean? Because that's always what that night before Thanksgiving is for, just like the see and be seen shit. And I was excited to see some people and, uh, you know, I'd been kind of an old soul growing up, uh, which is always a weird way to be as a kid. And I felt like finally things kind of worked out for me and I was really excited to see some people from high school, I felt like I had something to prove. So Suzanne and I drive into Boston. We decide to have some dinner before we'll see everyone at the festivities. So we go to this great restaurant called Chroma. We drink a bunch of dirty martinis, have a bottle of wine, nice and lubed up. All right. And we're dressed up for the night. We have on uh, high heels, tight jeans, cute blouse. I was wearing like a 70s style vest with a stripe across the front, big hoops. Big blonde hair, some things never change, and, and a purse that I love. So we're excited for a night out. And uh, so after dinner, we were walking down Newbury Street, and we're headed towards uh, Lear, which is on Boylston, Parallel Street. So we're walking down Newbury Street, and we're pretty drunk. And there's a guy coming towards us on a bike. And so we make single file so he can go by us on the bike. So Suzanne's first, and then I sort of tuck behind her so he can come by us. And as he goes by me, he scoops my purse out of my hand. And yeah. And sometimes, like, I don't know if you guys have ever been robbed, but it happens like that. And in two seconds, I was like, okay, Selena, you have your life. Just let it go. And then I'm like, wait, no. I'm starting a new job on Monday. And I have my license in that friggin' purse. And I can't get on the bus to get back to New York without my license. I need my purse. And that all happened in like two seconds in my brain. You know, I'm like, oh, no, here we go. So I turn on my heel and I start chasing this guy down Newberry Street. And as I'm chasing him, I'm screaming. I'm like, help, help. And then I remembered what I heard in an episode of Oprah, <laughs> which is don't scream help because no one will help you. What do you scream, my friends? Fire. Correct. I probably shouldn't urge you to scream that in a crowded theater right now. <laughs> All a joke, all a joke, everything's fine. <laughs> so yes, I do that exact thing. I'm like, no, remember that episode of Oprah? And you know why you scream that is because people are inherently selfish. And they think that they could be hurt by a fire, so they are willing to intervene. Whereas if you're just like, I need help, they're like, sorry, you're on your own. So I'm like, fire! So, and I'm very drunk, so I'm screaming as I'm running. I'm just like, fire! Fire! Like some shitty Doors cover band. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, fire! You know? Oh, man. So I'm chasing down, screaming this at this guy. And I don't know if you guys know Newberry Street, but it's more of a retail area. Like at night, it's pretty dark. Like there aren't a ton of restaurants there. So it's a pretty smart place for, for this guy to mug me. Like, good work, my friend. Um, but there's not a lot, but there are a few restaurants. And they're pretty classy restaurants. And most of them have valets. And these valets, I don't know if they see this all the time, but they are just watching the show. Like... We are running by, and they're just watching it go by. So as we're running, I'm like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And as we're going, my best friend Suzanne is with me, and she's calling 911 while we're running. This delightful couple sees the crime parade. They join in. So we're all just like hustling down Newberry Street. And 
I, I gotta say, like, I do really love running. It's my favorite type of working out. Just, like, put on Appetite for Destruction, go, you know? So I'm able to catch up to this guy. So I end up running alongside him on the, on the, um, we're, like, on the sidewalk. He's on a bike right here to the left of me, and I'm in the right lane. And I'm like, God damn, Selena, what you gonna do now? Like, oh, did you think about this? I, it was just kind of crazy and all unfolded so quickly, so I just took my fist and just punched him in the chest. <laughs> And he lost his balance, thankfully. And on the bike, he's just like... And I know he's about to just eat shit. But he's gonna eat shit into my lane of running. So I'm like, oh no. So I watch him go down, he's just like... But his bike busts out into my lane. Thankfully, I used to do a ton of tumbling and figure skating. So I shit you not, I am able to jump over it, stick the landing. But then we continue on foot. Yeah. And in college, I had like a workout addiction slash recreational eating disorder. So I could run all day long. That's fine by me. Here we go. So we just continue on foot. And at this point, it's like I'm so drunk and I'm like, this is so absurd. So I'm just like, fuck you. I work in publishing. I make shit money. And we're just like going along. It was so ridiculous. Finally, this guy is like, this chick is a psychopath. (laughs) So he takes my purse and he just whips it into some bushes. And then he crosses Newberry Street to go back to get his bike. Because his bike is worth more than my Gap purse. (laughs) So he goes away. I grab my purse. Everything is still there because the zipper is so shitty that it's not easy to open. Thank you. (laughs) The Gap, saving my shit. So I open it up, everything's there, my makeup, $6 cash, uh, pack of cigarettes, you know, because I like working out, but I also like smoking, so cardio health is like at zero. So I like pull out a cigarette, I'm like so riled up, I pull out a cigarette, have a smoke, Suzanne, my best friend, is like, cops are on their way, I'm like, oh my god, and this sweet couple is like, we'll stick around, we'll tell them all, you know, we'll testify to what happened, whatever, whoo. So, you know, within minutes, all these Crown Victorias roll up, (laughs) and Some are marked cop cars, which are all Crown Vicks. Some are unmarked Crown Vicks. But, like, how obvious is an unmarked Crown Vic, you know? (laughs) I remember once my dad wanted to buy a Crown Vic just, like, as a civilian car. And I was like, Dad, everyone's going to think you're an undercover cop. Like, no, you can't buy that. So all these Crown Vicks roll up. Boston PD, some are in uniform, some are not in uniform. And they're all just so goddamn mass. Like, you can, like, smell the Dunkin' Donuts on their breath, you know? And they're like so sweet and they're just trying to figure out what happened here because it's such an insane story. And like, honestly, I wouldn't believe the story if I hadn't lived it and I have witnesses in Boston. Like, trust me, it was the most bonkers story of my life. But so Boston PD, they're just like, ah, miss, trying to get a sense of what happened here. Uh, Perpetrator came at you on a bicycle. Uh, I took your pocketbook. You gave chase. You were uh, somehow ended up catching up to him. You punched him. You were able to uh, get your pocketbook back. He fled the way he'd come from back toward Mass Ave. Is that correct? And I was like, uh, yes, that is exactly how it played out. Yeah. And they like, God bless those guys. They were so sweet. They were like, God damn, you got a lot of hustle in you, kid. And they literally, they go, you got a bunch of brothers at home? 
And I was like, no, no, I grew up, I'm the youngest of three girls, all sisters, no, no, huh? But uh, I will say this, um, that's the last time I've ever gone back to Boston for Thanksgiving. And, uh, and Suzanne and I, Suzanne and I didn't even go to the reunion that night, you know, like, we're just like, I guess let's call it a night, because I really, I don't know, I had this whole idea that I needed to prove something to people, and I was like, meh, I don't feel like I gotta prove shit anymore. Thank you guys so much. The time to hesitate is through The time to wallow in the mind China we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre Come on baby, light my fire Come on baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire A couple of years ago now, I guess, it occurred to me that I needed to write a book about growing up working class in Queens. And the reason I say, like, needed um, is that I actually stood with a clerk in a bookstore and I became aware of the fact that the last sort of notable household name book that was written by a working class New York woman about us was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was 73 years old. If there's a Scorsese film, it's like De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, cut to a lady in a house dress, De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. So I become aware of this fact, that was enough. I was like, I'm going to do it. I was like, and I am not going to let a measly thing like not having a writing degree or much experience or possibly any talent get in my way. Woo! You know, <laughs> to the brink. Uh, and so that was it. That was it. I just decided, you know, fuck it. I'm doing it. So my my parents split when I was two, so I grew up in kind of two different little worlds and two different parts of Queens. So I am Tara Clancy, so the Clancy's, my Irish side, my father's side, comes from Broad Channel, which is this sort of very working class, you know, very much cops and, and firemen part of Queens. And my dad, as it turns out, the only thing he could find and afford was this house that was, it looks like a single wide trailer, but it had been a boat shed. People think it's like this awful thing. It was amazing. We had so much fun. We like shared a pull-out couch bed, and my dad made puppets from his tube socks, and it was heaven, you know. And we listened to like everything you think we listened to, like Springsteen and Melon Camp, and like you know, it was this neighborhood of just like rough and tumble, great kids, you know. We had right in front of my house was this kind of abandoned lot. People had put their junked cars in there, my my father's included, and that was our playground. And my mom and I lived in a, like, multi-family house with my grandparents, which is, like, classic New York. It was, like, cla- it was like this sort of, think of, like, a, a, a Japanese pagoda, right? Like, there was, like, my grandma and grandpa on the top, and then me and my mom were in the bottom. And that was also great, you know? Um, and I had this huge family that would all come for parties in our basement. And we literally had so many people when you have 41st cousins. And so that was my, that was my Italian side. 
you know, my mom was the uh, second woman ever to graduate high school in a family and the first and the only to go to college. And my father is the only person in his family to graduate high school and then the only one to go to college. He went back to college. He was a cop, but he went back to college at night. My dad's like this like trivia knot, like he will kick your ass in jeopardy. You know, he was super, super intelligent guy. People have a hard time with that distinction, right? Like intelligence versus education, you know? So I didn't notice this big difference. It wasn't like I got into Manhattan and I was like, wow, you know what I mean? You guys are, your IQs are just so much higher than ours. I was just like, oh shit, you had more books. My best friend in high school, it was of some really, like, unlikely friendship. You know, um, I was this, you know, little, I, I still didn't know it yet, but I was like this little dyke, you know, with my little dyke style. And my friend Allie was like this classic kind of Queens, you know, thugged out white girl. I always say she looked kind of like the love child of Barbie and Snoop Dogg. You know, she had like the blonde hair, but it was, you know, like slicked back and then, you know, the hoop earrings and but she had freckles, you know, I mean, she was just this badass. And I was I was pretty tough, but I was a little bit more artsy and like I owned like one Jimi Hendrix album, you know, like everything else was hip hop. And I I was like kind of trying to, you know, like veer off a little into rock, which made me like nuts, you know. And so she was my best friend. We like we looked so different from one another. Like we looked like we should hate each other. The fact that we actually were together and it was just the two of us all the time and we would sit together in the cafeteria we would you know we, she was just my 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 best friend and then she starts acting a little bit strange and calls me up one day and she's like can I walk down your house I'm like yeah you don't sound good uh, and she walks down and she's teary eyed and she's like I gotta pack my bags I gotta get up like whatever money I can get and I gotta get out of here. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And she's like, tomorrow I gotta get on a bus and I gotta get the hell out of here. And I'm like, I- I'm-, I'm in shock, you know? And she's like, Tara, I'm pregnant. I was like, whoa, you know, we were 16 years old. And the way she went at it, like I have to leave, I have to go, you know? I was like, uh, I was pretty shocking. So, I kind of calmed her down, was like, okay, we are going to tell your parents, you know, this is going to be okay. Um, And eventually it was, there was support there. You know, everybody kind of rallied. Me and her sister would bring her homework home for her. She would do her homework. So she was able to graduate high school. Um, she did really well, actually. Like, we had gone from being these almost dropouts to both of us like doing really well in school. You know, it, it was an amazing kind of turnaround. Suddenly it was like, okay, like you're a mom. I need to figure out what the fuck I'm doing with my life. You know, my father would have been happy if I like went to the army or like went to the police academy because that's what we grew up. That's what we did. You know, I've said there's only like where I come from is like, there's only two job options: um, cop, not a cop. You know, like what else could there be? You know, like <laughs> like you get a solid city job, you get a job with a pension, and you hold on for dear life. And you are proud and you do your best and you do it forever. And that is what you do. And so I, I kind of didn't think that was the way I wanted to go. Um, but I wasn't sure what else there was. And then I started reading Shakespeare. 
I had stolen a cup of coffee from a teacher's lounge, skipped class, and went to hide to drink the cup of coffee in an empty classroom. And I sat on the floor. And when I sat on the floor, I was next to a bookshelf. And on the bookshelf, I saw what I think I pronounced in my head as like King Lear. Like, and I remember thinking, oh, this is probably like some Knights of the Round Table shit, you know? And I'll just like flip the pages while I'm drinking my coffee. And I opened it and I was like instantly, like my mind was blown. Like you know, the language, I mean, all of what makes Shakespeare amazing. And I read the whole book. I ended up like cutting the next two classes, read the whole thing straight, ran out of school, got on the back of the Q43 bus going down Hillside Avenue in Jamaica, Queens, get into the back where all my friends are. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys are going to believe I read this crazy fucking book. There's this crazy motherfucker and he's got these three little grubby ass bitch daughters. And I'm like translating this to like street ease, you know, and nobody could give a shit. Um, but I am in heaven. And I went home and I was like, this is it. And I went back into school and I was like, this is what I want to go to school to do. I want to study Shakespeare. So I decide that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to college and this college is going to be in Manhattan. But in order for a kid from Queens to get into the city, and right, you know, that's what we call it, was this huge deal. It was literally like we had to call up everybody you've ever met, right? It's like, Tara's going to go to Manhattan for college. Ring the bells. Call everyone you know. We're going to do it, you know. Um, And that's what they did. Like, you know, this one called that one who was able to get me a job bussing tables at this Irish pub restaurant. And then this one was able to get me a job at this new pizza joint that, you know, the guy who owned it knew my dad from back in the day. And when it opened up, he was going to give me a job waiting tables. You know, um, it's interesting. I've sort of always said that, like, getting to Manhattan from Queens is the same as sort of getting here from Boise. You know, I'm like, it's 17 stops on the fucking F train, but it might as well be Mars. And literally all the New York City kids, all of us, uh, because there was a handful of us, and we all were just huddled together, like, that first couple of weeks. And we were like... We're fucking idiots. Like, I, these kids have read every book ever written. Like, I thought, you know, you, you were kind of the big fish in, in your little pond of, you know, the kids from the Bronx, the kids from Brooklyn, the kids from Queens. And then we get into Manhattan and, and this school where, I mean, there was a couple of kids from Manhattan that were definitely, you know, class-wise, like, you know, uh, in a different place. But it was mostly people from out, outside of New York. But upper class, upper middle class. I was early to a class after lunch, and it was just one other girl in the class who was one of those New York Manhattan upper-class kids. And we had never really spoken much, but I guess she felt like she should make some chit-chat. And she said to me, what'd you have for lunch? And I said, oh, I said I had a huge sandwich. And she was like, huge? And I was like, yeah, it was really big. And she was like, huge? And I was like, it was a good-sized sandwich. She was like, huge? And I was like, it was a pretty fucking sizable sandwich. What the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) And she was like, Tara, the word is huge. And I was like, no, it's not. (laughs) It's like a silent H, I think. Isn't it? You know, and she was like, no. And like, thank God. It was like saved by the bell. In come the kids. And I was like, this conversation is over. Thank you, God. But it was all I could think about. I was like, oh, shit. Like, I have an an accent. And I know instantly what that means. Like, I've seen TV. I've seen cartoons. I know what people with my accent, uh, what that means to the world, right? We're the construction workers. We're the hairdressers. We're the nannies. um, We're the villains. You know, I was like, I was like, oh, shit. And I actually decided that night to try to drop it. (laughs) I'm looking in the mirror and I'm going like coffee. And then I'm like, 
coffee, coffee, coffee. Yeah, it was terrible. I pretty much thought I had it kicked for a few weeks. Like nobody said shit. And then I had to read this scene out loud from Twelfth Night, Shakespeare. And the word that got me was here. Here is what you would say. I say here. Like, come here. And I read this line and the professor cracked up. And the kids, like, kind of, like, some looked in their laps, some giggled along. And she was like, Tara, oh, you're so adorable. The word isn't here, honey. It's here. Here. This time I wasn't mortified. I was, like, enraged. I was like, oh, fuck you. I'm bringing that shit back. (laughs) It's going to stay. And uh, you are going to learn that I can, you know, be intelligent and have a fucking accent. Because you hear my accent, you think construction worker nanny bullshit. What don't you think? You don't think Robert Caro, genius biographer. You don't think Richard Feynman, brilliant theoretical physicists, right? It's like when I open my mouth, people aren't like, wow, I bet you she's popularized quantum electrodynamics. (laughs) But they should. My very first year, my freshman year, there was a required writing class. And on the very first day of the class, this teacher walks in and she puts an apple in the middle of the table. And she says to everybody, I know this is just going to seem so stupid and silly, but I'm going somewhere with this. I want you to all go around the room and give an adjective to describe the apple. And one by one, these kids go around the table. And I'm sort of at the, like, other side, right? And they're going, you know, crimson, (laughs) globular, right? And as they're going, I sort of think I understand, but I'm not 100% sure. And so when it gets, like, two away from me, I get up and I bolt for the bathroom. And the reason is um, because I didn't know what an adjective was. I thought I had it figured out with the crimson and the globular and all this shit, uh, but I was like, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's like a number of syllables the word has to have. Like, there could be something I'm missing. And if I fuck this up on my first day. So I bolt. Week later, we have to hand in our first paper. I hand in my paper. Week after that, we get our papers back. And the professor pulls me aside after class. And she's holding a plastic bag. And she hands me back the paper. And she says, listen, you are a real diamond in the rough you've got a lot to say and i want you to keep saying it um but i'm gonna be blunt your grammar is not up to par she kind of stumbled and i was like the verge of tears and she just hands me like thrusts this plastic bag into my face and i take the bag and she's like just do this okay and i was like okay and i walk out and i open the plastic bag and in there are these third grade grammar workbooks like a grammar textbook and a grammar workbook and I went home to my apartment and I mean like I was blown away and here I am like sitting at my kitchen table with a number two fucking pencil (laughs) doing workbook exercises uh like you know I was back at PS 133 uh except that you know I was an 18 year old who was working and going to college and I was mortified so I was actually in the dorm. I get a phone call at like, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And it was my best friend's younger sister. My best friend from high school who had had the baby. Um, and she was like in a panic. And she was like, we can't find her. And I was like, what do you mean you can't find her? She was like, 
she dropped the baby off to be babysat. She said she'd be back in three hours and it's been like a day. Do you know where she might be? And I had seen her like several months earlier in this apartment in Brooklyn that was just no good. Um, you know, it was like the cars, bucket seats ripped out for like, you know, that was the furniture and like a milk crate. And I was like, things aren't good here. But I had this memory of where it was, like kind of Greenpoint area. And she's like, you got to go find her like right now. And so literally I like, get off the phone and I like tiptoe out of this dorm. And I'm too, you know, embarrassed to say what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, I just got to run out and, you know, just get some cigarettes. You know, me, I'm not going to be like, hey, you know, my best friend who had a baby at 16 is back on drugs and abandoned a kid. And I got to go fucking drive around Brooklyn trying to find her. So I found an apartment and uh, it had been cleared out. And days went by and we didn't hear from her. And then I got this call again in the dorm from her late at night saying, listen, I'm okay. I'm sorry, but I just can't be a mom right now. And, uh let my parents know I'm okay and I will be in touch every once in a while. I, I love her, but I can't do it. And I, ooh, you know, I was oh, man. So my life may have started to be somewhat different from some of the people that I grew up with and my best friends in high school, but they never turned from me. They weren't like, whoa, suddenly you watch Fellini and you listen to Anita Franco. We don't want to hang out with you anymore. They didn't give a shit. They're like, that's Tara. She's crazy. Who gives a fuck? She's fun. Let's go. You know? So, I mean, forget it. What I thought of them. Like, they didn't turn for me. When I came out, you know, all that shit at 19. No one gave a shit. They're like, yeah, we know, motherfucker. <laughs> What finally got me to feel a little less fish out of water and a little more like this is my place um, was that I sort of did in college what everybody like me does in college, uh, a girl. Um, (laughs) I got my first girlfriend and she was this perfect bridge from kind of working class blue collar queens to East Village lesbianism and, you know, college land. Uh, She was from actually like technically Nassau County in Long Island, but her parents were from Queens. She kind of has an accent like me and she was in Parsons. But when I met her, she like already was one notch ahead. Like she already owned a couple Ana DeFranco albums. You know, she already had like seen Fellini, you know, like she had stepped into the art world, but she was like this perfect little person to kind of take me with. And so she was like my little guide. Uh, And she was also, you know, my first big love of life. I, I adored her. Her sense of style even was like this perfect combination of like somebody who grew up kind of Queens, Long Island and East Village. Like she would wish she like would wear like these like gold lame skin tight pants, like real Long Island Jersey Shore. Right. But with like a feathered vest, you know, like she looked like a hooker and a chicken just collided. Poof. You know, <laughs> um, Suzanne. And I actually nicknamed her Birdie. And dating her, I started kind of feeling like, all right, this is where I belong. If for no other reason than I'm queer and I do have these weirdo artsy inclinations that are, you know, beyond Shakespeare. But I've always kept, you know, all of my world. One of the publishers was asking me when I wrote the book, like, do you still talk to all these people? And I was like, yes. I was like, they're my best friends. You know, like, they're still, like, 
daily part of my life, you know? And I definitely have some other weird, artsy, you know, like village friends too, but I didn't leave it behind, you know, that kind of bullshit sort of thing of, oh, you gotta leave it behind. I didn't leave it fucking behind. I, I would rather be with them, you know? <laughs> But it's true. I mean, they're, you know, they, their lives are, you know, if not as much, maybe not infinitely more, but they are as interesting as any artist I've ever met, you know? Um, so I, I, I kind of, you know, I got both. This is Risk. That is John Mellencamp, the Coog, the Coog, my friends, with pink houses behind me now. Uh, we just heard from Tara Clancy. You can find her at taraclancy.com. But listen, her new memoir, The Clancy's of Queens, is so chock full of remarkable stories like the one you just heard. It is a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick. And her essays have been in the New York Times, The Nation, the Paris Review. She is just a treat. We love Tara. So check out her new book. And you can also find her on Twitter at Tara Clancy NYC. Now, did you know that Zola.com is the wedding registry that will do anything for love? Couples can register for the brands they want on an easy-to-use platform with the ability to personalize everything with notes and photos. It's a registry that feels like the couple. Zola is one-stop registry. The couples can register for whatever they want. Sheets, wine subscriptions, honeymoon funds. Zola works directly with 400 and f- over 450 brands so that the happy couple can find whatever they want from brands like KitchenAid, SoulCycle, Le Creuset, Sonos, Ralph Lauren, and more. It's available everywhere. It's the highest rated registry app on the iPhone. Couples can have gifts shipped now, later, or exchange them for something they'll really love. Zola is the wedding registry that'll do anything for love. All the gifts, experiences, and funds you want all in one place. Risk listeners receive $50 when you register and use Zola. So visit Zola.com slash risk for details. That's Z-O-L-A dot com slash risk. 
Also, you guys know you can maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business with Stamps.com. Think about how much time you waste going to the post office. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. Use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you do right from your desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now, our final story this week comes to us from the wonderful Hal Karp, who does a lot of work with the wonderful local Dallas, Texas storytelling show, Oral Fixation. If you're anywhere near Dallas, you should definitely check them out. They're at oralfixationshow.com. And how, oh my gosh, someone couldn't make it to the show that was supposed to be on that night in Dallas because of a plane troubles, and Hal jumped in at the last second, and man, was that a lucky break, because he was fabulous. So here he is now, Hal Carp, with a story we call The Rock and the Hard Place. When I was uh, eight years old, I was not the uh, specimen of manhood that you see <laughs> before you. I was uh, really small for my age, and uncoordinated and unphysical and uh, as shit. I was the kid that when, you know, they would like pick captains and then they'd everybody line up against the backstop, you know, they'd fight like, I don't want that guy, you know? So when I was at summer camp, I was at this day camp, this all-boys camp, and the camp bully told me, Carp, tomorrow, you and me in the sandbox. I was, I was scared. His name was Kenny, and he was the uh, resident camp bully. And it was 1971, and it was in uh, Denver, Colorado. And uh, this camp was called Camp Schwartz. And it was owned and operated by Dave Schwartz, who was a 50-ish, ponytailed hippie who wore two things only, a red Speedo and a matching red whistle. And he had, he didn't really have, Dave did not really have the physique for the Speedo. You know, he had that kind of like the Speedo, like you really couldn't see the Speedo, kind of. And he did. 
Camp Schwartz, I'm convinced to this day that the single reason my parents chose Camp Schwartz was because they offered one thing that was really special, door-to-door service. A VW bus, how many people remember VW buses, right? <laughs> VW buses would pull up in front of our house and like, ah, ah, honk, and like all my parents had to do was like open the door and like kick my brother and I out the door, you know? <laughs> And they were both teachers, so they were, like, sleeping for the summer, right? So, like, to them, this was, like, bliss, right? So, like, every day, the bus would pick us up. In the evening, the bus would bring us back. I was eight. My brother was six. Camp Schwartz was a total fucking free-for-all. It was run by Dave, and it was also run by a bunch of teenage hippies. And there was a lot of uh, tie-dye, bell-bottoms, and peace signs. But there really wasn't a lot of peace, because every day in our cabin, which was really just a big sandbox, okay, there was a fight, and Kenny was the resident bully, and he would tell everybody, like, tomorrow I'm gonna kick that guy's ass. And the counselors, like, encouraged this, right? <laughs> they thought it was, like, really fucking cool, like, you know? So, like, I, kn- I mean, Kenny was true to his word. That next day that I went to camp, within seconds, you know, he was on me right there, it's like, bam, 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 bam. I mean, I had my arms up, and I'm trying to protect my face, and I can't even get a, a hit in, and like, I'm bleeding, and now I'm in the sand, and there's sand in my mouth, and there's, I can taste my blood, and he's like, kicking the fucking shit out of me, and I'm just like, doing this, and doing this, and finally, when I'm bleeding at my nose, and out my mouth, the counselors finally like, pull him off of me, and he's yelling, you fight like a girl, you pussy! And I like had my arms up like this, and I, I, I peered out, and, and I looked, and like all the boys sitting around the edge of our sandbox cabin were staring at me. And they were all thinking the same thing I was. What a fucking loser. You know, I mean, it was one of those first times I remember thinking, like, everybody knows the truth about me. And I just like slinked away into like my corner of the sandbox. One of the things that Camp Schwartz offered was field trips. You could go like bowling, or you go to the museum, or you go to the bear cave. Now, the bear cave was kind of, I don't know why, but it was legendary. So they would, like, put you in these VW buses and go two hours into the mountains in the Rockies, and then two hours back. And while you're up there, you'd, like, hike up this trail and see this bear cave. And maybe you'd see a bear. Now, I had never gone any of the field trips, but suddenly I just wanted to disappear after that fight. I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to get away from camp. I wanted to get away from Kenny. And so when the counselor said, who wants to go to the bear cave, you know, my arm shot up. And a few minutes later, I was on one of those VW buses, and we are like, getting ready to go to the bear cave. And I'm thinking, like, thank God I'm away from, going to be away from camp. And guess who gets on the fucking VW bus, right? Kenny gets on. I'm like, what the fuck? Is he going to tease a bear? <laughs> so, like, the whole two hours up, I'm thinking, I'm going to vomit, you know, like, I, I got on this to get away from that guy, you know? We get up there, we get off the buses, and we go past this waterfall. It's a really big waterfall and river. We hike up this really narrow trail, and we get up there, and there's this one spot where the counselor's like, this is one of the significant parts of the bear cave, was on the trail, there was a spot where some boy had tripped and fell and had amnesia forever. So, like, all the counselors are like, hey, dudes, look at that's the rock right there. We're all like... Wow, (laughs) that is so cool, like amnesia forever, don't fall. And we get up to the bear cave, and the bear cave, the bear cave is like nothing. It's like a, it's like like this, it's like a hole in the freaking rock, right? There's no bears, it's not dark, there's not even any bear shit, right? So we're like totally feeling ripped off, 
We go back down the trail. The amnesia rock has no interest anymore. And we get down there to the campsite where the vans are, and they give us these bologna sandwiches with, like, white bread, one slice of bologna. If you've ever been in jail, it's kind of like exactly like what you get. <laughs> right? So they give us these, and we're eating, and they give us a bunch of Coca-Cola. Like, you know, because it was 19... It was in the 70s, right? So, like, they just gave us these giant flats of Coca-Cola. And guess what the counselors did? They snuck off and disappeared. You know? Because, like, that was what they were doing. And they're all getting stoned. And suddenly, Kenny gets up on this rock and has this little Lord of the Flies moment. He goes, (laughs) You know... The waterfall that we saw in the, in, the, in the water, we're going back now. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I want to go, I want to go. And of course, like, you know, me, the schmuck, I'm like, yeah, I want to go, even though this guy kicked my fucking ass in the morning. So like suddenly we're like dashing back to the waterfall and then we get there and Kenny's like, to the top of the waterfall. And we're up there and like, he's like, watch this. And he takes this big rock and he throws it over the edge. We all look over the edge of the waterfall and it splashes and like, we're like, this is like the moon landing, man. I mean like, cause when you're fucking eight years old, is there anything cooler than watching a rock splash, right? I mean like, like <laughs> I'd be like, that's the coolest thing. Now it's on, like who can get the biggest fucking rock? Right? So we're like bringing these giant rocks and like at some point though, the boys started drifting back to the vans, okay? And at some point, it's just me, and Kenny and his crew cut, okay? And like, we're having this silent contest about who can get the biggest fucking rock over the waterfall. And he's got this boulder, and he's got this boulder, and he's like, we pushing it and pushing it. And I look at him, I'm like, fuck that, I'm gonna go in the woods and get a bigger fucking rock than that. And I turn around and I start walking in to find a bigger rock. And then I hear this giant <laughs> splash. And I turn around and there's no Kenny. And there's no rock. And I walk over to the edge of the waterfall, and there, with the water up to his neck, and the rock on him, on his leg, is Kenny. Of course, you know, I'm like, what happened? (laughs) What the fuck do you think, man? Get down here, asshole, and help me. And I noticed that he's, he's bleeding now. I didn't say no, but that's what I was thinking. Because I'm like, this guy kicked my ass in the morning. Like, fuck, I'm not going down there to help him, you know? And uh, I guess it was obvious on my face because he said, Carp, I'm really sorry about this morning. I really am. Please, will you please come down here and help me? So I ran down the embankment and I pushed the rock over him and his leg was fucked up. It was like broken, like obtuse angle broken. And it's like bleeding, and I tell him, I'm a Boy Scout with a first aid badge. (laughs) I can take off my belt, and I can make a splint out of bark. (laughs) And he's like, this really hurts, man! And he's like crying, and he's bleeding. He is crying like a freaking baby. And there's a piece of me I'm loving the shit out of that. So I get him up to the shore, and I make the splint, and I put his arm over my shoulder and we start like hobbling I go we got to get back to the vans man we got to get back to the vans so we're like hobbling and we're hobbling and we're hobbling it takes us like 20 minutes to get back to the vans and we get back there and uh, there are no fucking vans there's no counselors 
There's no boys. There's a bunch of fucking white bread. <laughs> and bologna on the ground. And Kenny and I are like, are we in the right place? Where are the vans, man? They left us. The fucking stoners, they left us. Two eight-year-old kids, right? Me and Kenny, okay? They left us in the freaking mountains. Now, every time I tell this story, people are always like, were you scared? Were you scared? We were too stupid to be scared. I'd be like, we were too young to be scared. I mean, you know, we were literally, we were like, I guess we'll walk home. I mean, like, you don't have any sense of distance. You're not driving, you know? So, like, I go, let's walk, you know? So he puts his arm over, and he's like, it hurts, man, it really hurts. We stop and take breaks, and we're walking, and we're walking. We're going the right way. It's like dirt roads. We're walking. We're walking, and we're limping. We're hobbling. We're taking breaks, and now it's getting dark, and the sun goes down, and the moon comes up, and now the fucking stars are coming out, and we're like, how much farther do you think it is? (laughs) (laughs) Two hours we drove there, right? Finally, we come to this like farmhouse. We see this light in the distance. So we go up to this farmhouse, and there's a woman standing outside. And she looks, I mean, like, imagine this. She, she sees these two eight year old boys coming out of the woods, right? One with like a splint made out of bark and a belt, <laughs> right? And we're like walking up to her. Excuse me, miss. But our camp left us in the woods, and we were wondering could, could, could we use your phone to call our moms? <laughs> and she's like, Your camp did what? camp left us in the woods and she's like what happened to your leg Kenny's like I broke it and she's like what happened to your shirt I had blood all over my shirt from the earth and Kenny's like I did that to him but that was earlier (laughs) so she's like yeah boys I think it's a really good idea to call your moms (laughs) so her name's Patty we go into Patty's farmhouse she lives there with her two kids and Her husband is a park ranger, but they're not home, okay? So we actually, she goes, why don't I call your moms and explain it? So we give her her, our numbers, because that was back in the day. Remember when when you were in school, they made you remember your number, you know? So like, we knew our number. So we write down the numbers, and Patty calls Kenny's house, and there's no answer. Kenny says, my mom's probably not home. She's she's really never home. And I said, what about your dad? He goes, "I, I don't got no dad. Patty says, well, you want me to call your mom at work? No, please, please don't call my mom at work. She doesn't like being bothered. I, I, I stay home all by myself. Just, I just need to go home. I just need a ride. Patty calls my mom. Now, my mom had been, like, at her fucking wit's end, okay? Remember, I was going to camp with my six-year-old brother, okay? So when that little VW bus pulled up in front of our house that afternoon, you know, and opened the door, just my brother got off. <laughs> And my mother, my mother was like, where is your brother? And he's like, he didn't get on the bus. <laughs> She's like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't know. I'm fucking six. <laughs> he's gotten a little smarter since then. <laughs> but... This is also back in the... So what does my mom do? She calls the camp, right? But this is like the camp is closed. There's no answering machines, no cell phones, no emergency centers. Dave Schwartz is off somewhere, God knows where. Okay, so like, there's like nobody to call. The phone just fucking rings and rings and rings. So like when she gets the call from Patty, she's like, 
you know, hysterical. She goes and gets our next door neighbor who happened to be the county sheriff and he took his squad car because she was too unnerved to come up and get me. My father was at work and like she was in like, thank God, because like she was convinced if he had been there when I didn't get off the bus, he would have gone and killed Schwartz, you know. <laughs> so they come up and they pick us up. Uh, Patty never reaches Kenny's mom. So we take Kenny, my mom and I and the sheriff, we take Kenny to the hospital back in Denver. Finally, somebody at the hospital is able to reach Kenny's mom. And when she gets there, she immediately starts screaming at him for getting left in the woods. And my mother is like unnerved. She's like, you know, just, just why don't you calm down? And the woman was like, shut up, bitch! She's like, mind your own fucking business. This isn't your kid. The whole, like, everything just like, stopped still. My mother grabbed my arm and, like, pulled me out of the ER exam room. And as I stood there, in the doorway of the ER exam room, I remember looking back over and seeing Kenny. His mother was like leaning over him, you know, and she was just like screaming at him. And he was like wincing. And she was like, you know the goddamn trouble you caused me, you piece of shit, I had to leave work? And I looked at him. You know, he didn't look like the boy that had uh, spilled my blood that morning. As a matter of fact, what he looked like was what I felt like when he spilled my blood. Alone, scared, sad. And you know what, I just, God, I just wanted to fucking save him. You know, I just wanted to say, Kenny, Kenny, you can come home with us. You can, you can come home with us. We have a real family and a real house. Just come home with us, please. And we got in the car, I said, Mom, can we please go back in there and get Kenny? I mean, did you see the way she was talking to him? Can we, Kenny just come home with us? And she said, no, Hal. Kenny has a mom and a home. But even as she said that, we both knew that no, he really didn't have either, certainly didn't have a home. We got home, my dad got home, found out what had happened. He was irate. He stomped around all night in this like manic fit. And when the camp opened in the morning, my father called Dave Schwartz. And he told him, Schwartz! He's from Brooklyn. <laughs> Schwartz, if I were you, I'd close that goddamn fucking camp because you know what? Any day now, there might be a fucking bomb under your desk. Oh <laughs> it's gonna blow your fucking Speedo and your testicles off. <laughs> a fucking bomb, Schwartz! My dad made that call every day. <laughs> For a long time. You know what's funny about that is like, what would happen today if that happened? The first thing we'd do, like, Sue, right? I mean, I'm just like, I was just born too early. I mean, like, <laughs> I'd be so fucking rich from being left in the Rockies. <laughs> So this is probably going to come as a shock to all of you, I'm quite certain, but my brother and I did not go back. <laughs> we did not go back to Camp Schwartz, not the next day or any other day. But we did go to a new day camp. They did not have door-to-door -door service, but we did come home every single day. Thank you very much.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Radiohead behind me now. This crazy song, a witch hunting sort of song that I think captures a lot of the mass bullying tone in the world today. The bullies running the show. And speaking of shows, holy cow, we've got amazing live shows coming up for you folks. We are in Brooklyn. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn on February 22nd. That's going to be one hell of a show. On March 18th, we'll be back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. Brian Babylon will be there on March 18th. Sovereign Sire will be coming back. We're in Burlington, Vermont. Burlington. We are in Burlington for the very first time ever on March 18th. March 18th at Burlington. We're still taking pitches for that show. The theme is idiots. And you can pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video of me there telling you how to pitch us successfully. So go there, Burlington folks. We will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota on April 29th. The theme that night is action action everyone in minneapolis that's april 29th we're taking pitches for that may 20th we are in denver colorado may 20th we are back in denver colorado the theme is irresistible irresistible is the theme on may 20th in denver on june 9th we're in portland oregon the theme is hype on june 10th seattle washington the theme is destructive And on June 11th, we're back in Vancouver. The theme is Monster. So pitch us, everyone. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you know someone in town who might have an amazing story to share, tell them what Risk is. Tell them to pitch us. If you're worried, oh my God, I don't think I can tell a story. Well, then go to thestorystudio.org, our school. You can get one-on-one training with me. You can download our video courses and watch them in your own time. Or you might want to hire us to train your staff on better communication around the office. All of that is at thestorystudio.org. And of course, if you want to interact with us at risk on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we're at risk show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And everything else you might want to know is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Come on. Yeah.